0: Discover the Power Within, Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to The Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, and today we'll be talking about prin- spiritual principles that have been present for so many years, for really you know, millennia, and um, we're going to be talking about that from the perspective of yoga. And although many people are familiar with the term yoga today, most people don't understand it in its fullest meaning. (laughs) Um, Yoga is a Sanskrit word that means oneness, union, or unity. And it really is talking about bringing together our attention and awareness with our essential spiritual nature to be restored to our original wholeness. So it's far more than just a stretching program, yoga, or a form of exercise. It really is talking about philosophy and practice for spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. Our topic today is open your heart, change your life. How do we embrace the uncertainty of life and still live with joy, peace, and acceptance? And what can death teach us about living fully? My guest today is Frank Ostaseski. Frank is an internationally respected Buddhist teacher, co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project, and founder of the Metta Institute. He has lectured at Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, Wisdom 2.0, and he teaches at major spiritual centers around the globe. His groundbreaking work has been featured on the Bill Moyers PBS series, On Our Own Terms, and highlighted on the Oprah Winfrey Show. He's been honored by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and Frank is the author of The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. You can find more about the book at fiveinvitations.com and more about Frank's work at the website metainstitute.org. And metta is M-E-T-T-A institute.org. Welcome, Frank Ostaseski. I'm really delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour.
2: Oh, I'm really thrilled to be with you and to have a conversation of of meaning and purpose. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So before we begin that conversation about meaning and purpose, let's start with a moment of meditation, a yoga moment. Oh. So let's begin just by bringing our attention to the here and now. And let's start by just noticing where we are, where our body is supported in space, whether we're standing, walking, sitting. Just notice all of the places where our body touches the ground, the floor, the seat, And then bringing our attention to our breath, which is such a wonderful tool to help us bring our attention to the here and now. So just noticing as we take an inhale, noticing the cool air in our nostrils, and then as we exhale, the warm air flowing out. Continuing to notice just the rhythm of our breathing, the natural rhythm, not trying to change it but just noticing its natural flow. And then imagining with each in-breath, we can dive within. And with each out-breath, we can relax and let go. And as we dive within, We can touch the essence at the core of our being. Many people associate it with the heart. You may think about it as just dropping our attention to the heart. This essence at our center, at our core, This one reality is called by many names. And it's the support and substance of all that is. It's within us, between us, and all around us. And just by being present and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. And as we rest there, we may notice thoughts or feelings as they arise. And if that happens, we realize we can just, just watch them. Watch them as they arise. And watch them as they pass. Pass out of our awareness. And we can... Be aware of our essential nature beyond words and thoughts, beyond all change. Just being present now. And in noticing this, we become aware of the peace that emanates from the essence of our being and allow it To pervade the mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. We allow this peace to expand within us and imagine each cell opening to that peace, basking in it. As we abide in this peace, let's remember to bring it with us into our day and share it with all we meet. Om. Once again, Frank Ostasewski, Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm so happy that you could join me today.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. And thank you for that beautiful meditation. What a lovely way to begin our conversation.
1: Yeah. I always think it's nice to get out of our heads and actually experience what it is we're talking about. It's a nice way to start the show. Certainly, it's nice for me, a way, a way to get grounded as I begin. So I've really been enjoying your book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And I, I know you. this comes out of your hospice work. I know you've been working with hospice patients for many years. So what inspired you to write this book at this time?
2: Oh golly, you know, there's so many different reasons for that, to, ways to answer that question. I, I think the most predominant one, though, is that, you know, I've been with a few thousand people as they died, sitting bedside with them. And one of the things that I realized or saw continually was that many people came to their death full of fear and regret. And I thought we could do something about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the habits of our life have a very strong momentum to carry through into the time of our dying. And so the question arises is what habits do we want to create in our life? So the book is really a kind of invitation to people to examine their lives, to use, to shine the light of death on their lives, to find out, um, what has meaning and value and purpose in their lives. And then I think if we live a life in that, in, in that way, then we come to our death, um, much less afraid, um, with much fewer regrets. Yeah. Yeah. So really I think of it as a service to the world.
1: Mm. Yeah. That's really lovely. And I wanted to go back to something you and I were talking about the few minutes that we had before the show started. And I was saying that, that uh, people don't like to talk about death. People don't like to, you know, think about it and you corrected me. And so, so let's talk about that a little bit. So why has your perspective or what is your perspective on that? Why have things changed?
2: Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, let's be honest in saying, of course, there are still, you know, hesitation to speak about this very difficult and challenging subject in our lives, this experience of our of everyone's life. But um, my my thought on this has shifted over the years. What I see now is that people are actually hungry to talk about death. They want to know about the experience. They want to prepare for the experience. It's just that they're afraid. You know, we've so mystified this experience we've so taken out of taking it out of our everyday everyday lives made it something technological we've turned it over to professionals in a certain way mm. that in a way what's happened is we forgot what we know you know what our grandmothers knew and so we've become frightened and so we, w- we want to talk about it but we need to talk about it with someone who's not so afraid you now someone who's open to the subject and can listen um, That's another reason why I think I wrote the book was to kind of encourage this sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when we keep death really close at hand, really at our fingertips, my experience is that we don't hold on so tightly. Mm. You know, we we let go a little bit more easily. Um, I think we become kinder to one another. Mm. And so this is why I think every spiritual tradition over the, you know, centuries has reminded us to keep death as an advisor, because it shows us what's really important, what matters most, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually really love the way you described it in the book. Uh, you said, uh, quote, to, um, the book is an invitation to, uh, this is the quote, to sit down with death, to have a cup of tea with her to let her guide you toward living a more meaningful and loving life. And I just thought that was a really beautiful image. You know, I mean, it is the reality. We are each going to die. And this idea beforehand of sitting down and having a cup of tea with death, I thought was really, was really, um, I don't know, it, it was, it, it, it is an invitation
2: yeah, I think it is. And, and you know, we don't have to be so terrified about it. Now, and I'm not romantic about dying. Look, this is hard work. This is the toughest work we may ever do in our lives. It's yeah. it's sometimes painful and it's messy and it's uh, uh, traumatic for some people. But it also can be beautiful and transformative. But above all those things, it's normal. It's ordinary. Mm-hmm. All of us will go through this experience. None of us get out of here alive, you know. Right. And so let's find a way of meeting this um this experience, which is, you know, the common thread running through all our lives. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that helps, this idea of being open to death? How does it help us live a more meaningful and loving life?
2: Hmm. It's a great question. I mean, let's take um, a simple example, you know, when we know that we have a limited amount of time, for example, with a friend or a family member, when we recognize that this life of ours is absolutely precarious, that we don't know exactly how long we'll live or what conditions of our lives will be, I think what it does is it causes us to appreciate its preciousness. And then we really want to care for this life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true that everyone we love, uh, all the people we care for, will one day come to their death. Now, Understanding that truth, the question arises: how do we want to care for them? How do we want to attend to our relationship? So I think that again, the reflection on dying or a, a personal death awareness, it's not about being, um, you know, morbid. Mm-hmm. Just to the contrary, actually. It's really about stepping more fully into our lives, mm-hmm. you know, so that we live a life that's characterized by love by compassion, by wisdom, instead of by fear and regret. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, t- the two questions that people ask me in one way or another, in around the time of their dying, isn't really about, you know, should they have spent more time at the office? It's <laughs> right. really about, am I loved? And did I love well? Am I loved and did I love well? Those are the two questions really on people's minds. And if those are the two most important questions at the end of our life, Well, aren't they important to us now? I mean, can't we step into those questions now and um, let them guide our our actions, our relationships?
1: Yes, indeed. So as the title indicates, your book includes five invitations, things that death can teach us about living fully. So what are the five invitations? How did you develop these?
2: (laughs) Well, you know, an invitation is a a request, right? To show up to, um, if someone invites you to the house for dinner, that's your job, show up. Yeah. So these invitations are in a way, uh, a request for you to show up for your life. And they came out of my work with people at the end of life, people who were dying. And we, we first used them as sort of guidelines for how to care for people or how to companion people near the end of their lives. But then we saw that they had a relevance for the rest of us in living a full and happy life. So I wrote them, actually, on an airplane flying back to New Jersey to um, help Bill Moyers develop a program called On Our Own Terms. And I thought, let me just write down four or five salient points that really speak to this experience of companioning people near the end of life. So briefly, they were um, these five. The first is don't wait. That's the first invitation. Don't wait. You know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. The second invitation is welcome everything, push away nothing. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Now that sounds good. It would make a great bumper sticker, but how do we do it? You know, I I think it's really an an invitation to um, include everything that comes toward us. It doesn't mean we have to like it or agree with it, but we have to be willing to meet it. Mm. The third is, bring your whole self to the experience, bring your whole self to the experience. For example, when we're caring for someone who's sick, we might think it's our strength or our expertise, which helps, but actually it's our whole being that helps. You know, our, our fear serves, our helplessness serves. They serve as meeting places with the people that we're taking care of. So when we bring our whole self forward, we don't just bring forward our, um, um, you know, all of our skill sets, we bring forward also our weaknesses.
1: Mm -hmm. Our humanness.
2: Our humanness, exactly. Yeah. Our woundedness even. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So the fourth is find a place of rest in the middle of things. You know, when you're taking care of someone who's sick, um, you don't have time to go on vacation. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to find a way of resting right in the middle of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. We often think that you know, we'll take a rest when our list gets checked off or when our, you know, in email box is empty. But I don't know about you, but my list is never checked off. So if <laughs> I wait for that, I'm in trouble. So I have to learn how to rest right in the middle of whatever it is I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth and final one um, is called Cultivate Don't Know Mind. And I, I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in, in this list. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Zen is full of these kinds of counterintuitive illogical kinds of questions, sometimes mm-hmm. called koans, mm-hmm. that shake us out of our habitual way of thinking. So to cultivate don't know mind isn't to cultivate ignorance. It's to cultivate a mind that's open, that's receptive. You know, when we're so full of our knowing, sometimes there's not much room for new things to enter. So mm-hmm. to cultivate a don't know mind is to open a mind, uh, is to cultivate a mind of curiosity and wonder and, and um, uh, receptivity. Yeah. So these are the five. Uh, Don't wait. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Find a place of rest in the middle of things and cultivate don't know mind. And again, these were guidelines for caring for people who are dying. But as you can see, they have a relevance for all of us in living a, a more satisfying life.
1: No ab- absolutely. And you know, just even hearing that list, I think listeners will understand why I wanted to have you on the program. So um, I, let's go back to the first. Don't wait. Uh, so I, I appreciate how Im- I appreciate how impermanence is the root of that invitation. Don't wait. everything's changing all the time. What we experienced yesterday, no matter how pleasant or unpleasant, is different from what's happening today. Um, in fact, as you point out, we rely on impermanence. I thought that was interesting. So how do we rely on in- impermanence?
2: <laughs> well, you know, that really boring dinner party that you're going to go to on uh, Saturday night, it will come to an end, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. That the pain in your knee that, that sometimes troubles you in your meditation won't always be there. Mm. Um, presidential terms do finally finish, yeah. So I think we rely on impermanence um, in these ways in that it helps us to remember that the things that are difficult or challenging for us will, are in fact uh, subject to being um, the constant change. Okay. So that's one way I think that it helps us. Okay. But the other is perhaps more important, which is that it shows us just how fleeting this life can be and that we don't want to miss a moment of it that we want to jump in with both our feet and really love it and enjoy it and and, and completely engage in our lives, yeah? I mean, any parent who's raised a young child knows how quickly those first few years of childhood go by, you know? My, My dear friend was just sending her young twins off to first grade you know, to their new first day at school and and she was happy for them, but also a little sad, you know, that this particular kind of time that she'd had with them was now shifting, yeah, now mm-hmm. changing. Mm-hmm. So I think it helps us to appreciate um, again, the preciousness of this life that we've been given.
1: Mm. yeah, I, I think you refer to it in the book as the beauty of impermanence,
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I was in Japan this spring, and I was uh, traveling around there, and I happened to be there at cherry blossom season. And as you know, they're quite beautiful and very ephemeral and delicate, and, um, um, and I, they're just absolutely gorgeous. There's a place I teach up in Idaho where outside the cabin where I stay, there's these little tiny blue flax flowers that last for one day, one day, these little flowers. tell me, why are those cherry blossoms, those blue flax flowers, so much more beautiful than plastic flowers? Mm. Hmm. I mean, isn't it their ephemeral nature, which gives rise to their beauty? Mm. So I think that, um, yes, um, you know, the fact that the sun sets each evening helps us to really appreciate its beauty.
1: Mm. So we've got about just about three and a half minutes before the break. And I was wondering if that brings to mind a story. You and I were talking earlier about how you might want to, you know, bring some stories uh, into it of your many experiences that you've had.
2: Well, gee, there's so many different ones that, that of course cross my mind as we go to speak. But, you know, in, in this one that we're just speaking about here, this, this question of don't wait, you know, there was a fellow that I worked with who worked in a wire hanger factory, and um, he was, you know, he lived on the streets and in small residential hotels, and um, he he kept putting off the discussion around his dying. He just didn't want to talk about it. Um, and then, over the course of uh, in, in the course of a ordinary conversation with him, he said to me, "Ah, oh, who am I kidding? You know." He said, to tell the truth, I'm really scared and I'm angry and I'm tired and I'm confused and, you know, I'm 45 years old, but I feel like I'm 145 years old. Mm. Yeah. And um, when you really listened underneath this conversation with him, you really got this sense that, you know, he was, rem- he was really me putting himself in contact with this experience of don't wait. Yeah. Mm. Not waiting. To do what in our lives, what really has purpose and value and meaning for us, you know, not wait to tell the people we love that we love them. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think that um, as people come closer to the end of their lives, they remind us of what it is that's really essential, that's most important in our lives.
1: Mm-hmm. So in the book, you describe hope as a subtle sometimes unconscious attitude of heart and mind that is an essential resource in this human life. So how does hope help us to deal with impermanence?
2: Oh, boy. Um, you know, our normal way of thinking about hope is that that um, we, we mostly relate to it as an outcome, you know, the hope for a better future, the hope that Santa will bring us presents, you know. Um, I think that the hope that I speak about in the book is a kind of what I might call a mature hope or a wise hope, which helps us to really th- reflect on um, how can we discover in ourselves the resources that we need to meet life no matter what it deals us, you know, no matter what situation arises. Um, maybe when we come back from the break, I'll share a story about that because I know our time is a bit limited. But um, so. It's not just hope for some uh, eventual outcome that we think will make life better. It's really hope for um, that we can touch our most essential nature, and then that nature will allow us to have the wisdom and compassion we need to meet what is difficult and challenging in our lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. hmm Yeah. Yeah. So... Um... I guess we're a few seconds early, but I'll go ahead and, and, uh, um, you know, move to a uh, close and, and let's come back when we come back from the break, let's definitely uh, talk about that story, um, that you were just, uh, remembering.
2: Yeah. Let, let's see. Hope is more than just wishful thinking. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you're listening to the yoga hour with special guest, Frank Ostaseski, co-founder of the Zen hospice project. Founder of the Meta Institute and author of the book that we're discussing today, The Five Invitations Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. You can find out more about the book at fiveinvitations.com and more about Frank's work at the website metainstitute.org. It's M E T T A Institute.org. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the Yoga Hour. And when we come back from the break, we will explore more with Frank Ostaseski about open our heart, change our life. We'll be right back.
2: All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, We invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support.
1: Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads a banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what that Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org.
0: Would you like to show your support for Unity Online Radio? You can donate easily on your phone by texting the word VOICE to 50555 and donate $10 to support Unity Online Radio. It's easy to do, and your offering will help us keep inspirational and positive programming on the air. Remember, just text the word VOICE to 50555 and support your favorite shows on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Daily Word has developed beautiful card decks to support your spiritual journey. One deck is about healing. Another is about finding peace in troubled times. And the family cards are two decks, one for parents and one that can be colored on for children, so families can talk about spiritual principles together. The card decks are available from Unity. Go to Unity.org, then click on Shop or call 1-800-24-UNITY Monday through Friday. More and more people are interested in a vegan lifestyle, and the numbers continue to grow. Join Victoria Moran every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central for Main Street Vegan, and learn how to make the shift to help animals and the planet. Each week, Victoria shares recipes, health tips, and interviews with celebrity vegans, experts, and activists. Learn how to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal, right here on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: Call now with your question or comment, 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, living the eternal way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, with my guest today, Frank Ostaseski. Frank is an internationally respected Buddhist teacher, has lectured at Harvard Medical School, the Mayo Clinic, Wisdom 2.0, and teaches at major spiritual centers around the globe. He is the author of the book we're discussing today, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. So, Frank, before the break, uh, you had a story in mind. So can you share that one with us about hope?
2: Yeah, we were talking about hope, you know, and how it's this kind of attitude of heart and mind that's really essential for our human life. But normally the way in which we think about hope is as a kind of wishful thinking. You know, I hope that I make it to Christmas or I hope that, you know, uh, I get the relationship that I that I want. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were speaking about hope as something different than that, something that's more Subtle, we could say, that really has to do with the resourcefulness of our basic nature. Um, one day I was walking through the hospice and there was a woman there um, dying of cancer and she was eating watermelon. And I thought, hmm. And I noticed this one afternoon and then I noticed the next afternoon she was eating watermelon again. And I, I stopped in to see her and I said, gee, you know, you must really like watermelon. And she said, "Actually, no, I don't care for it so much. But my husband Fred likes it a lot, and he thinks it's really helpful for me." Mm. And so I, I began to inquire a little bit, you know. And um, she said, "Fred said it's really good for my cancer." Mm. And so at one juncture, I sort of pulled aside Fred, you know, and I and I, you know, with very with enthusiasm, really, I said, "Hey, tell me about this thing with the watermelon," you know. And so he was very excited, you know, and he said, yeah, it's really great, you know, and it, it's really a great treatment for cancer. And I said, well, could you show me where you got that? And we went on the, on the web, on the internet, and he looked up this particular site, and uh, I said, go ahead, read it to me aloud. And as he did, he became really despondent, and he covered his, mm-hmm. you know, face in his hands. And he realized that earlier on, he'd been misreading this website, that, he, that really what it was saying was consuming watermelon was very good for hydration, and hydration was an important part of healing. And he missed some of those details and just heard, heard watermelon's good for healing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he was really devastated in that moment. And I, and I said to him, you know, if, um, if your wife has only one more week to live, what would you really hope for? And he didn't hesitate for a second. He said, oh, I I hope to love her, you know, and that she would know that I love her with my whole heart, that I love her without reservation. And and I would hope she would know how blessed I feel to be married to her. And um, I noticed that over the next few days that Fred never left Rachel's side. He was with her continuously, you know, throughout the course of her illness. So, hope is this really innate human quality that can contribute to our sense of wellness. We don't want to toss away hope that wouldn't help. But oftentimes the way we speak about hope is really just the flip side of fear, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and so the mature hope that I was alluding to, um, has both a clear intention, in other words, to move forward, but also a willingness to simultaneously let go. So it's not dependent on outcome. Right. You know? In fact, it's tied to uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen next. You know, mm-hmm. That's the truth of our lives. And so the hope is in the potential for a more awakened, a more you know, uh, mature response than to things turning out a particular way. It's an orientation of the heart, we could say, that's really valuable
1: mm-hmm. and that we
2: need in this life.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think you've been describing, you know, one of the uh, principles, of course, of many religions, but it's a yoga principle, you know, this Mm -hmm. dispassionate non-attachment, which I think you gave such a great example. Um, It doesn't mean we don't care, clearly. It doesn't mean we don't care. We're just not attached to a
2: specific outcome. Yeah, and the reality is, you know, we're going to be attached. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is part of our human experience. You know, we want to live a long time. We would like not to have pain. We're attached to these particular, you know, occurrences in our lives. But, you know, when we're attached, if we just step back, just, you know, take a backward step for a moment, we can see that that attachment or that particular view, let's call it, is really coloring the way in which we're seeing our experience. And when we step back a little bit, we can see that, oh, there's the thing that we're concerned about and our attachment to it, and then there's some kind of openness or space, we could say, um, Mm -hmm. expansiveness, that isn't being flavored so much by that attachment. So it's not like we'll get rid of all the attachments. It's just that we'll find some more space around them so they won't necessarily rule our lives Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. determine all our actions.
1: Yeah. So... We have four other invitations to talk about.
2: <laughs> well, we don't have to talk <laughs> which about we're not going to but...
1: we won't talk about them all, but I was just going to ask you is there one in particular that that you'd like to go to next? Uh, we could just do the second, which is uh, yeah. welcome everything, push nothing away. Is that okay?
2: I think that's wonderful, you know. And and it's a it's a beautiful practice. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Now that that's pretty tough. You know, people think, well, that just means you're going to be a doormat. And that's not really my, uh, my yeah. encouragement. Right. You know, to welcome something doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean we have to agree with it. It just means we have to be willing to meet it. You know, there's a story I share in the book of a friend who went to dinner at the home of an eminent psychiatrist. And this particular psychiatrist had been developing Alzheimer's disease. And so he was a bit confused. And when they rang the bell, he opened the door And he said to them, he looked at them sort of blankly for a moment. And then he said, I'm so sorry. I don't remember people's faces so well anymore. And I can't hardly at all remember names. But I do know that this is my house. And that my house has always been a place where people were welcome. So I know that if you're standing on my step, my job is to welcome you in. Please come into our house. Isn't that a beautiful sharing, beautiful story? Yeah. Wow. So to welcome um, is to include. It's the willingness to face what's in front of us. You know, James Baldwin, the great African-American writer, said there are so many things in his life that we cannot change, but nothing can be changed that we're unwilling to meet. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you just you have this feeling of, okay, it's here now. Putting my head in the sand, denying it's the reality of its presence isn't going to help me very much. So I have to be willing to welcome it, and then see, you know, what what does it have to show me?
1: Yeah, right. So in the in the book, you you do remind us that, of course, suffering is everywhere, um, and you remark that that's one of the most difficult truths of existence. So how does welcoming every everything help us to deal with suffering?
2: Well. Let's put it another way. How does denying the presence of suffering help us in our lives?
1: (laughs) That's great, that's great.
2: You know, it it, it may give us a certain temporary relief. You know, I like to watch a good television show or movie just as much as everybody else, you know. Um, Carl Rogers, great humanist, you know, psychologist, he said something which I've always loved. He said, you know, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. You know, then I can change. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy at the hospice in the early days of our hospice Actually, I met him in a psychiatric unit at San Francisco General Hospital and he was in that unit because he had terminal lung cancer and he couldn't imagine a life of any kind of dignity or purpose and so he tried to take his life mm-hmm. and I met him in this psychiatric unit there he was under this synthetic blanket turned toward a green wall and away from me. And I I just sat in this metal chair, I remember. And after a while, after some time in silence, he turned over his shoulder and he looked at me and he said, who are you? Nobody's ever sat this long with me in silence. Mm -hmm. I told him who I was, and I was from the Zen Hospice, and um, that I got lots of practice at sitting still in silence. Mm -hmm. And then I asked him a simple question. I said, what do you want? And he looked at me and he said, Spaghetti. <laughs> and I said, spaghetti? He said, yeah. And I said, okay. I said, well, you know, we make really good spaghetti at our hospice. Why don't you come and stay with us? And he said, okay. <laughs> and, and that was the end of the admissions interview. Wow. And, and the next day he arrived, or He arrived at the hospice, and we had a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him. Because do you understand it meant nurturance and familiarity and um, um, comfort. Yeah. Now, he just, he didn't want to, he didn't stop wanting to take his life just because we gave him spaghetti. I mean, it was good spaghetti, but it wasn't that good. And um, in fact, there was a book, this was many years ago, before the current laws on physician assisted death. There was a book at the time by Derek Humphreys that talked about how to take your life if you have terminal illness. And he wanted this book. So I I said, okay, I'll get it for you. And I got him the book and every night I would read him a chapter. Welcome everything. Push away nothing. Mm. Welcome everything. We don't know what it is that's going to wake us up and really free us in our lives. So we have to be willing to meet whatever shows up. Mm. So we would read this book, and um, and in the end, he didn't take his life, actually. He stayed with us for a few, two, three months. And right before he died, he said, Frank, he said, I want to thank you. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. Mm. And I said, oh, nonsense. I said, you wanted to kill yourself just a few weeks ago because you couldn't walk in the park or write in your journals. I said, what was that all about? I'm very honest with people. And I said, oh, that. He said, that was just chasing desire, he said. I said, what do you mean? These activities aren't important to you anymore? And he said, no, no, no. It's not the activities that bring me joy. It's the attention to the activities. He said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. I thought this was a remarkable turnaround for a man who I met in a psychiatric unit. Mm -hmm. I mean, really what had shifted, you know, he was still dying. Cancer was having its way with his body. But in another way, he learned to really welcome his experience. And it wasn't new age gobbledygook, you know, it was real. You know, he turned toward his experience. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I find the healing in our lives is found by turning toward what hurts. You know, we're often running in the other direction. It whacks us in the back of the head. So turning toward our experience, that's what I'm speaking about here by welcoming. Mm -hmm. Turning toward it, see what it has to show us. What does it have to teach us?
1: Mm. No, it's just really, really beautiful. (laughs) So the third invitation, bring your whole self to the experience, is one where you talk about authenticity. So when you say authenticity, what what does that mean to you?
2: Well, in part, it means saying what's so when it's so. Um, It means acting with integrity. Uh, It means being real. Um, It means engaging with what has heart and meaning for us. Um, uh, It's taking personal responsibility for both the task at hand, and also the relationship that we find ourselves in. Um, in, in my experience, it, it's it's a way that we build trust, um, not only with others, but with ourselves.
1: Mm.
2: Um, you know, there, there was a young woman, Sarah, that I knew that worked in a small hospice for homeless folks in Washington, D.C. called Joseph's House. It's a brilliant hospice still going on. And... Um, the clientele there are mostly african-americans mostly people dying of aids and some with cancer Mm. and she's a nice young enthusiastic young white woman and you know she was with this one particular patient who was kind of grumpy you know we have this idea that when people are dying they get all spiritual and warm and fuzzy you know but no that's not true you know they they can be (laughs) awfully grumpy that's right and so she was grumpy you know and um uh, there was this woman, Miss Helen was her name, and she, uh, she said to, she was just kind of complaining at poor young Sarah, you know, and uh, calling her a stupid white bitch, She that's what she, said, mm-hmm. called, that's what she called Sarah, you know, and she said, you just got those skinny little legs, you know, and what good are you to me anyway? And Sarah, instead of, you know, just cringing and, you know, slinking away, turned back to her with a sense of humor. And said, come on, you know you like me. You know you love me. You know you like this little butt of mine. And <laughs> and just started playing with her. And didn't get caught in, you know, her racial identity or the sense of racial privilege that, you know, had been managing uh, most of her life. And she just opened her heart with a lot of love to this woman. Mm-hmm. And they became dear, dear, dear friends, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and Sarah cared for her right through the time of her dying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... You know, what authenticity does is it brings forward uh, the deep innate wisdom that you speak about in your yoga practice, you know, Mm -hmm. willingness to then bring that wisdom into conscious action.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the fourth invitation is find a place of rest in the (laughs) middle of things. and I really, really appreciated this invitation because I think rest is really undervalued. (laughs) in our society. Um, And I enjoyed your description of rest. Rest is found when we are present instead of letting our minds wander aimlessly through the hallways of fear, worry, and anxiousness. Rest Mm. comes when we become more by doing less, when we don't allow the urgent to crowd out the important. And I I just thought that was a really wonderful, wonderful description. Mm. Yet rest... Seems to be missing from a lot of people's lives today. So, what what uh, can you say more about that?
2: Oh, golly! You know, everyone. I whenever I meet someone these days, it seems uh, they are always talking about how busy they are. How you doing? I'm okay, but a little too busy. They say almost <laughs> right. always in in response. And how did we get there? You know, mm. you know. I I remember when computers were first being sold to me. They were supposed to help me you know, um, have more free time. I-, I want my money back. You know, that didn't work. <laughs> <Right>.
1: <laughs> yeah, Exactly. You
2: know? So yeah. I think that, um, you know, resting has to do with settling in a certain way into our experience. And it doesn't necessarily take a lot of time, but it does take a willingness to be present. You know, when we are uh, reading a book and really absorbed in that book or watching a film, you know, we rest. We allow ourselves to enter into this kind of um, receptive posture, we could say, or when we're with a young child who's, you know, a newborn baby, you know, or, or some, uh, a child that isn't yet speaking, we have this feeling of entering into almost timeless sort of exchange with them. So learning to find a place of rest right in the middle of whatever it is we're doing means bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is we're doing. hmm you know, I, I was working with a, a Silicon Valley executive, um, one of the leaders of one of the major corporations that we all know about. And he, his doctor, actually asked me to see him. And he was having a lot of issues related to stress and all kinds of physical ailments as a result. And uh, so I asked him about his day and he said, well, my primary thing I do is I sit in a boardroom and various teams come in the room and they report to me about the progress with their particular team. And I said, and then what happens after that? He said, oh, then the next team comes in. So I said, well, when do you pee? <laughs> he said, oh, I don't. I don't have to anymore. I've got really good control over that. And I said, OK, first thing we're going to do is every hour you're going to get up and go to the bathroom. That's going to be my first intervention. <laughs> and uh, I said, whether you need to or not. And, I, and so we, stood, we just did, started doing this, interrupting the momentum of habit, really, by getting him to leave, get up from his chair, go into the, in the, into the toilet. And then we started working on him walking slowly to the toilet. And then we started working on him while he was sitting there to really take a few moments to find a breath before going back to his next meeting. So sometimes rest is about adding something else to the situation, like taking a breath or, you know, getting out and doing some exercise. But a lot of times it's more about bringing our attention fully and completely to whatever it is that we find ourselves engaged with, Mm -hmm. really listening to someone, generously listening to them without preparing our answer. Um, uh, Being with our children in such a way that we slow down to their pace, that we listen to them fully and completely with absolute open-heartedness. And and, uh, we let our teacher parental selves be put aside for a little bit. So, yeah, finding a way of resting right in the middle of whatever it is we're doing. That's the heart of meditation practice. Meditation practice isn't about resting necessarily, but mindfulness emerges much more easily in it a body that's at rest, a heart that's at rest, a mind that's at rest. Yeah. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I was just going to ask you about that, actually, you know, how meditation supports rest.
2: Yeah. Meditation isn't so much for me anyway, about transcending our experience or getting through our experience or substituting some other one, but really coming into contact, immediate contact with things just as they are. Mm. Um, and then, In the course of that, we understand things in a new way. You know, one of the instructions that I give to people when we're teaching meditation is three questions. The first question is, are you aware? Pretty much. We're always aware of something. So most people can answer yes to that. Yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware that we're speaking now, having this interview. Wonderful. Now, what are you aware of? That's the second question. What are you aware of? And there we have various objects of our attention that we're aware of sound of my voice, your kind attention, etc. And then the third question really is, how are you aware? How are you aware? Is there something that's really obscuring your awareness? In other words, are you looking through a particular lens or an attitude or a view that might be coloring the way in which you understand something? If we don't recognize that, we will think that we're seeing the thing clearly. Mm-hmm. But actually, when we're looking through some kind of lens of, the attachment you spoke of earlier or through some kind of fear or through some kind of grasping, we don't really see things as they are where we, we change the shape of them through our views. Our views and beliefs are not neutral. They shape the way in which yeah. we meet life. Ah. Yeah.
1: Well, Unbelievably, we're down to the last couple of minutes of the interview, and I wanted to give you a chance in closing, just to share some words of encouragement or inspiration, you know, with uh, our listeners. What would you like to, what would you like to say? I'll I'll let you, uh, let you choose the topic.
2: Well, I I think that you know, what we've been doing. And I want to thank you for this conversation because I think you it takes courage to have this conversation. And I'm really glad that you've brought it to your listeners. So I'd like to encourage them to continue the conversation, to visit with their families and friends, to share with them uh, what their hopes and fears are around their dying process, to be really clear about what they want and they don't want. So that's something very practical that I'd like to encourage people to do. Right. But then I, I want them to really embrace this notion that we spoke of at the very beginning, which is embracing the truth of constant change, that things are impermanent, that things are ephemeral. And first, this brings forward a kind of anxiety in us. But then, as we settle into it, we come to a much deeper appreciation for our lives, all that's given to us. And the natural response to that is one of gratitude, of gratefulness, that everything is freely given to us. And so the reflection on dying, the reflection on constant change is anything but morbid. It is life-affirming. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'd like to leave people with, I think, more than anything else. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. That's just, a, it's just really beautiful and obviously so true. So true. With that, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, and we've been discussing... Frank Ostaseski's book, The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. You can find out more about the book at fiveinvitations.com and more about Frank's work at metainstitute.org. And just as a reminder, Frank Ostaseski is a Buddhist teacher, co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project, founder of the Meta Institute, and a, an internationally known spiritual teacher. Join, uh, well, thank you. Stop there for a moment, Frank. Thank you for joining us. It's just really been a pleasure. I, I have um, such an appreciation for you and for your work.
2: Thank you, Laura. And again, you know, I really appreciate your taking the time and also having the courage to have such an honest conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, thank you for doing this program.
1: Mm-hmm. Join us next week when Yogacharya O'Brien's guest will be Swami Nirvanananda Saraswati, a monk whose music builds schools for children in need. Yogacharya and Swami Nirvanananda will be discussing how to let your heart lead you into serving and making a real difference. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious fulfilled living in today's world. For those of you in the San Jose area, please consider joining Yogacharya O'Brien and Swami Nirvanananda for Kirtan, which is chanting of um, the names of God. That will happen on Friday, September 7th, at 7 p.m. at the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose. I also wanted to let you know that Yogacharya O'Brien will be teaching a new six-week class this fall called Connect, Spiritual Practice Immersion Course. That class begins Tuesday, September 18th from 7 to 9 p.m. And the course is available both in person and online. For more information about the class, Connect, and about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, visit csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, regular host, founder, and director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Sean Smith, CSE's global media outreach manager, Holly Gray, and Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again while Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all that you meet. Bye now.